And after you've marked Song 662, we certainly are looking forward to giving some thought to the Word of God for the next few moments in our worship service today. As it's always our desire to worship God in truth and in spirit in the words of John 4.24, it's certainly our delight to open the perfect of all books. If you would, be turning to Revelation 3. In fact, a moment ago was read verse number 2 in that chapter, and in just a moment we'll use that as a springboard for the first part of our lesson this morning. It's so good to see everybody here today, and we're always excited that God has blessed us with the health that He has and permitted us to assemble in the way that we do in service to Him. A strong church, that's the title I've given to the lesson. And I'm sure each of us would have a great internal desire. I'd like to be a part of one, and I'd like to know about the features and the aspects of a strong church. This opening slide is one that will hopefully motivate us to look at some of the more detailed aspects that the lesson will bring before us in just a few moments. We quite often use the word strong as an adjective, and we might say that this particular person, he's a strong student. Or maybe, in reference to some other person, she is a strong speaker. Well, when we use that word that way, we mean that this person is fulfilling and doing, doing a marvelous job at those aspects that are defined in that position. So the strong student, that person is doing all the things that you would anticipate a student would do and doing them well. And the same for the speaker. Would it not be the same for a church? If a certain congregation is labeled as a strong church... Wouldn't it be natural to expect that that church is fulfilling all the attributes that the New Testament would describe in relation to what a church ought to be? I would suggest let's devote our time today to thinking about what that means. And certainly there will be a strong personal application as we go. Am I encouraging a strong church or am I a part of what's discouraging it? Am I, in fact, a part of what is making it less than what it could be in terms of strength? Needless to say, the question at the bottom is going to be what will motivate us through the rest of the lesson, and that text in Revelation 3 is where we'll start. I ultimately decided to begin the lesson with a danger. I know most of the time we like to think about the positive first, and to, in fact, accentuate that. But it would seem to me in this instance it might be better to motivate our thinking by using the verse we just read a moment ago. I'd like to start reading in Revelation 3, verse number 1. As we do that, remember that this was a letter, one of the letters to the seven churches of Asia. Those seven congregations, and there was Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Philadelphia, and also Laodicea, but right in the midst was Sardis. And the church at Sardis... Receive this letter from the Lord. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, I'm sorry, verse 3. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And, sh and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. 
Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. There's much that might be said about the letter to the church at Sardis, but yet from it could I just invite you to note a danger. As the Lord addressed this congregation, He complimented them at first. He said, I know your works. I'm aware of what's going on there. I'm very understanding of the circumstances in which you are. I know your works. But verse number 1 goes on to say, there's a name that you're living. This congregation, in fact, lived in accordance to at least the name that was maybe on the place where they met. They had the right name. But the last three words of verse 1 should shake us to our core. Though the name was right, it says you're dead. And not only that, he went on to say, Be watchful, verse 2, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. There were some things in Sardis hanging on the very precipice, the cliff, if you please, of of no good. They were ready to die, and the Lord sent this letter. Be watchful. Strengthen what remains. And in verse number 2 he says, I've not found your works perfect before God. Remember verse 3. Verse number 4 goes on to say, There's a few names still faithful. I would use all of that merely to say this. The church at Sardis should be a strong reminder to any of us. It's possible for the church to die. Now, I don't mean the global church. I mean a local congregation. Jesus here said so. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. And the few that's there that are still faithful, there are some bordering, teetering, if you please, in unfaithfulness, and they're about ready to die. Every one of us ought to then reflect and give consideration. We surely would want to be no contributing part to a church that dies. We would never want to have any part to play in encouraging that death. After all, Jesus died for the church. It ought to live. It ought to be vibrant. It ought to be energetic and active. And it ought to be more than anything else what the Lord purchased it to be. And so could we not say, there's a great danger here. Let's traverse onward and notice this. At the bottom... Wouldn't it be fair to say all of us should want to be a part of a healthy, active, vibrant, strong church? So how do you identify such a thing? What should you and I be doing to make sure ours is this? Let's use the rest of our lesson to study it. The New Testament describes the church in ways that help us see what was lacking in Sardis. What things had they failed to appreciate? What had elapsed from their consideration? Needless to say, let's start right here. Point number one, the first matter that surely would be a vital matter of interest, the church must be committed to truth. It has to have an uncompromising dedication to the things that are true. We each understand well, and it has always been so, that the devil, of course, prompting the influences of the world, will try to encourage something else. 
calling into question various and sundry things that the Bible testifies. And if he can ever succeed in bringing the minds of you and me to a point where we compromise this, he has won. Let's build it up like this. At 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul, in writing to Timothy in regard to the church that was at Ephesus, he said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is there expressly called the pillar and ground of the truth. It was so then in ancient Ephesus that if the truth was to be propagated, if it was to be taught, if it was to be sent forth, it would have to be by virtue of that church. The world is never going to tell you the truth. The devil will make sure of that. He will cloud it, twist it, pervert it, change it. Anything that will in fact lead to his end, which will be your end. But you notice the church is dedicated. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy? It's the pillar and ground of the truth. That pillar identifies a foundational structure of support. The ground of the truth. May we at Pippin always ensure that we are the pillar and ground of the truth. Never compromising it. If the Bible says it, that settles it. It doesn't matter what we think about it or even what others may think about it. The Word of God is the unchanging thing, 1 Peter 1.25. One final thought on that point might be this. In Revelation 2 verse 2, you'll notice this is not the final thing. It's entirely possible and it appears to be so in Sardis. They had the truth. The name they lived was a truthful name, but they were dead. May I say that if you and I, individually and as Christians, we may hold high the banner of the truth, but that alone has to be such that it meets with the other things we'll discuss today. I would ask you to note one more example. In Revelation 2, just go back one chapter. In Revelation 2, beginning in verse number 2, this time written to the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. At that point, you and I must highly commend the church at Ephesus. There were those who claimed to be apostles, and the church in Ephesus found them to be false. They tried them. They proved them. They compared the things they taught to the Scriptures and ascertained that those speakers were not of God. That's great. Problem is, look at the next verse. Although it might be said the church in Ephesus was committed to the truth, it says and hast borne, hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So may we say, being committed to the truth is the perfect starting point. But let's quickly come to point two. What else must be true of a body, of the church, if it is to be a strong church? I've worded it like this. It must behave as a body. Why might we say that? Because, of course, the New Testament identifies it this way. Could I direct your attention to Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23? Near the close of that chapter, Paul, in writing again to the church at Ephesus, pointed out this. He said very powerfully and also very interestingly, 
that this congregation was in fact the body of Christ and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. The church is there said to be the body of Christ. And surely the understanding that comes with that is then the means by which a body functions, the ways in which it behaves then ought to speak volumes about the behavior of the body of Christ. It's no wonder then in 1 Corinthians 12 verses 14 and following that is greatly expanded upon. Could I direct your attention? We'll not read all of that. It basically goes to the rest of that chapter. But at the very least it says, in the body we know there's the eye and there's the ear and there's the foot and the hand. And Paul pointed out the hand can't say, I'm not the foot, therefore I'm not of the body. And by the same token, the eye can't say, well, since I'm not the ear, I'm not of the body. Well, we understand that's absurd. The eye has its work, the ear has its work, the hand has its work, and they all function together. They labor harmoniously in a united way to carry out the work of the body. And in the same way, Paul pointed out in the church, there are individuals with various skills, talents, capabilities, as those are utilized for the overall well-being of the body, that's the way that God intended it to be. In the same way, there are those members that are uncomely, and there are those that have more comeliness. Now, you and I might describe that differently. There are those individuals who have talents that are more publicly displayable, and there are those whose talents are not in that fashion. But nobody has a right to say that one set's more needful than the other's that one set of individuals is more important than the others. Paul says we all function together as a body. We here at Pippin must ensure that that remains so. Every individual doing his or her part for the overall well-being of the body as a whole. After all, if there are individuals of various skills and others who do not have them, if those who don't have them then have to try and do the work of those that do, that in fact works against both parts. How important it is, as we notice in Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 13. I'd like to read that set of three verses, verses 11 to 13 of Ephesians 4, and listen as Paul describes the behavior of the body. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul highlighted there are those who are apostles, and there are those that are pastors, and there are those that are teachers, and he says, each one is for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so those that are skilled to teach, well, if they try to do the work that others then ought to be doing, it detracts from what they can do, and the work isn't done as well. We each know well how it would work if an eye tried to function like an ear. There'd be no hearing, and there wouldn't be very much sight. Or if a foot tried to function as a hand, there'd be no walking and there'd be very little gripping with a hand. The point is, every member must do that which is its function. 
Isn't it amazing that then the body is described in language and in terminology like this? May I say, the church, if it's to be strong, must be committed to the truth and must behave as a body. But that isn't all either. It must function as a family. May I say that as the New Testament describes the church, it's also described as the family of God. It's in that verse we noted a moment ago, isn't it? In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. What do you mean, Paul? It's the church of the living God. The church is the household of God, and the household is where the family dwells. It is that family. May we never lose sight of the fact that as Christians we are a part of the grandest of all families. There's a verse in Ephesians 3 that puts it like this. May I read verse 15? Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. If you are a faithful Christian, you are a part of the family that's in heaven and on earth. Your citizenship ultimately is in heaven. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now you abide here for a while, but your ultimate citizenship is beyond here. You're a part of God's family. That beautiful status you achieved when you were baptized. You see, when you came out of that watery grave of baptism, you were called the child of God. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27 says, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When you and I came out of that watery grave, someone immersed us beneath a body of water. And as we came forth from that, we had been plunged and our sins were forgiven. And now we were a person living in newness of life. And we had a new name. We were a Christian. We became a Christian at that moment. Not because an elder said so, not because a preacher said so, but because the Bible says so. Acts 2.47 still says, Praising God and having favor with all men, and the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. Therefore, as we became a Christian that day, we need to live up to the calling that, we've, that we have received. The sweetness of that thought invites me to encourage each of us to recollect this. There are certain things that a healthy family will exhibit. They'll support each other and love each other and encourage each other. Should we be any less? As the family of God, ought we not be able to encourage, to support, to edify one another? I might be so bold as to say it this way. We each know very well that this life will bring its challenges, and sometimes they're just hard. The influences, the places we work, the community, the behavior of the nation, the things going on around the world, it can just lead one to despair. We need some encouragement. This ought to be the place to find it. Hear me well. This ought to be the place wherein there is a directive to the things of God and the family encourages the other members of the family. We weep with those that weep. We rejoice with those that rejoice. Romans 12, 15. We are there to follow the dictate of that verse in Ephesians 4, 11. Are you and I admonishing one another? Or do we arrive at services, 
leave and go home and basically never said a word to anybody. And we don't look forward to seeing them at all until we meet again. Do we encourage each other like a family should? Do we exhort one another as a family should? That's what will make a strong family. It is at that light, let's close that thought, with the observation that a family, if it's healthy and not dysfunctional, it will dwell in love. It'll be based on a connection that's stronger than anything the world has to offer. And so it is that God's family ought to even be stronger than that because the blood of Christ is what binds us together. We have each been such that we've obeyed the gospel. And we look forward to living faithfully because we want to be with this group for all eternity. We understand, right, that we're going to die at some point. And there will be a lot of people on this earth that we know, sadly, we're just never going to see again because they're choosing to live for the devil. And we're not. But those that serve God, we're going to be with Him for all eternity. Are you going to be happy being in heaven with the people you're with now? Are you going to be happy serving for all eternity with those faithful to God now? That's the goal. That's the idea, isn't it? No wonder then let's come to point number four. A strong church will recognize the importance of worship. Those times are not arbitrary nor trivial. And they are not merely times to take up a few hours a week. Many times a family will have a certain thing that helps to bind them in strength. Maybe it's a get-together, a family reunion. Maybe it's a time at Christmas. Maybe at Thanksgiving. Maybe it's some other holiday at the year. But this family makes it a point to all come together. There is a time when God's family comes together. And are you aware there's only one time in the Bible when that's discussed and described? It is, of course, the assembly periods. We have the blessing of four times a week. Sunday morning at 9.30, a time of Bible study. We lift high the banner of the greatest of all books. We want to know what it says. We want to implement it and live according to it. Are you and I committed to be there? Following that is a period of worship at 10.30. During that time, we seek to worship in truth and in spirit because we know God demands it and He'll be pleased with nothing less. Then at 5.30 Sunday afternoon, we're blessed with another opportunity that day. Two of them. How much better could it get? Are we committed to be there? To never miss if I could possibly help it. In other words, that is a reminder. It is a public statement of not only ourselves, but all who are witnessing that person honors the worship, and he or she is dedicated to be there. Wednesday night, a midway point between Sunday to Sunday, a time of refreshing, of recharging, of Bible study. Am I invariably there? I know there are occasions due to illness or sickness or things beyond our control. But the key word is choose. Do I ever choose not to be at the services? If so, I'm contributing to a weak church, not a strong one. If so, I'm contributing to weakening the faith of others instead of strengthening it. We'll have to answer to God if that's our choice. You'll notice this matter of worship is highlighted so often in the Word of God. It is such that every part in worship is so critical. 
Do you look forward to participating in it? Praying, singing, taking of the Lord's Supper, giving as we've been prospered and studying the Bible. Do we look forward to every one of them? Admittedly, we try to do them all in an hour. And I think we do a good job at spacing them in such a way to give each person the opportunity to reflect on each one. But may we look with intent how serious each one is. What else is true of a strong church? We've looked at four elements so far. May I suggest another? There's something to be said about the way in which the church is described in the New Testament as a kingdom. It goes without saying, if there is a kingdom, there has to be a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. May I say that our king is Jesus Christ our Lord. That means that every moment of your life and mine, those who are citizens in His kingdom, we have to honor the king. He is the absolute monarch. He does not share authority with anybody. He is the head of the church. In Colossians 1.18, He, that's Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. That word preeminence means to be of the first rank. Jesus must be of the first rank. Is that true of your life and mine? You know, the members of the United States of America, and all of us are, you're not only a citizen of America today, but you'll be one tomorrow, and you'll be one Tuesday, and you'll be one Wednesday. In the same way, we are Christians today, tomorrow. Tuesday. Is your life on Tuesday reflective of and indicative of your commitment to the King? If Jesus appeared in the flesh, would He applaud what you and I are doing on Tuesday? Or would He frown in despair? Would He be disappointed? Would He be saddened by what He hears you and I talking about or the places He sees us going or what He appreciates taking place in our life? Would He encourage us? Or on the other hand, would he be rather saddened? You see, if we're citizens of the king, that means we must honor the kingdom and its king all the time. Look at some of these verses with me. In Colossians 1.13, as Paul began the Colossian letter, he made a rather dramatic statement about the concept of a kingdom. I'd like to invite you to listen as I read that in our hearing who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. As Paul addressed the church at Colossae, he pointed out there had been a time when those individuals were unfaithful, they were not servants to God. But in obeying the gospel, they had been translated into the kingdom. May I say that those of us that are faithful... We have been translated and are living each day in that kingdom. May we keep on doing that. May we live in earnestness toward that goal. By the same token, point number six is this one. And this will close our lesson. There's a thing that has been touched upon in many of the connections we've made today. I hope we've each been able to ask, so have I contributed to a strong church or am I contributing to a weak one? May I say that all of that perhaps can be summarized like this. 
Jesus, our Lord, lived a life of purity. He never once sinned, not even once. Not only did He never say anything sinful, He never thought anything sinful. Of all the thoughts that pass one's mind every day, never once was there a sinful thought in our Lord. And yet, you and I are called upon as Christians in a part of the body of Christ to live a life of holiness, purity, and consecration. I mentioned a moment ago about Tuesdays. Well, our life on Tuesday must be reflective of the concept we have here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 2, it reads like this. Keeping in mind the matter of purity as it's described here, Paul entitled it in the following way. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. When you and I witness a marriage ceremony, the bride is dressed in white, supposedly indicative of her purity, that she is presenting herself a chaste virgin to, to the man she's marrying. Paul said, the church is like that. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and you and I as the church are His bride, and we should present ourselves a chaste virgin to Him, living a life of complete purity, striving to only do that which He commands of us, that which He approves, and to live a life in which we shun things that are evil. We avoid it because we know that would not make us a chaste virgin to present to our husband. What about your life and mine today? Are you living purely? That's going to be a powerful element of a strong church. A community knows, and our associates know what kind of life we live. The people that you work with, the people that I work with, those that know us from other activities in life, they know the kind of people we are. And they know if we're true to what we claim. They know if we truly live in the way we supposedly say we do on Sunday. Are we living that way? If so, we are a part of what will make a strong church. But if not, could I invite you to notice that there is a set of verses in Revelation 19 that are rather stirring. It's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. I like to think of it much like this. You and I perhaps have attended many weddings, and typically the husband and the wife, they'll have a reception right after the ceremony takes place. And all the guests will be invited to a particular place, and they'll sometimes enjoy a meal, but usually there's at least finger foods. and There's a time of celebration, a time of happiness, and a time of joy when all of these who want to encourage the best for the bride and the groom, they just come together in a time of enjoyment and fellowship. Are you aware of the fact there is going to be a reception for the church? It'll be right after the day of judgment. Everybody that was faithful to the Lord, that's ushered into the eternal climes of heaven, will be invited to sit down at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Are you and I going to be there? All the wicked not, will not be invited. They'll already been sent off to hell by that time. All of those unfaithful won't be invited. It's only for the marriage supper of the Lamb. May you and I live a consecrated, pure life so that we'll make sure to be able to sit down at that meal 
For if we've missed it, we've missed everything. Let's close our lesson then and say, what makes a strong church? May I point out that a church will only be as strong as the individual commitments of its members to the things we've studied today. Each one of us must be committed to the truth. Behave like a body. Function just as we've learned in regard to a family. Worship in spirit and in truth. Appreciate the nature of a kingdom as we've learned it today, committed to Jesus. And finally, live a life of purity and dedication. If that doesn't describe you or me today, in just a moment we're going to sing a song of encouragement. And what better time to invite this family to encourage you as we pray to God for your forgiveness. You see, if you've already been a faithful Christian at one time and that's your situation, there's no need to continue it. Why not change today? We call that repentance. If you have never become a Christian, there could never be a better day than this one, the 2nd of June, 2019, to be your spiritual birthday. Jesus, in fact, will add you to His church today. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. This congregation would wish to encourage you in that way. And do it now so that you can be a part of a strong church while together we stand and while we sing.